DevSecOps, the CISO perspective. So it's kind of important to start this concept with baseline definition of what is DevOps. It's um, all well and good to say DevSecOps, but if we don't actually baseline what I think DevOps is, and, and maybe that's different than what you think DevOps is, we can basically have that understanding and go forward from there. And so for me, DevOps really is about three pillars, people, products, and process. We'll talk about that in a second, but also more importantly, it's about taking what used to be traditionally different teams, the development team and the ops team, and starting to standardize how they communicate, how they work together, and then even how they can learn and share skills between each other. So let's dive into that briefly, and then we'll add security here in a minute. And so first off, going back to those three pillars, people, process, and products. Those are the three different ways people will talk about DevOps a lot. And that's because it really is operating in all three of those aspects. DevOps as people is, again, about the fact that we have developers, we have operations, all those sorts of other teams that actually come into DevOps. It's just hard to fit them all into the same acronym, especially if we later going to call it DevSecOps. We don't need to become a 12-syllable word. The DevOps people, the different people that we want to bring together to help work with better process. What are the techniques? What are the methods that we're using to bring those people together? And then product. There's going to be a ton of different software products that people love to talk about in the DevOps context around automation, around continuous integration, continuous deployment. And again, this is DevSecOps for the PSO perspective. I'm not going to dive into those. I've got some other older videos that, that do. So if you are curious about that part of it, let me now send you the link. But really where it comes back to DevSecOps and where it I think the most relevant thing is it's about breaking down the silos that traditional development teams, traditional operations teams have found themselves in. And so how do we think about making dev team and making the ops team part of the same team? That's what I think the philosophy of DevOps is all about. It's about bringing them together in a way that developers have a little bit more focus on operations and the operation team thinks a little bit more about developers. And the ultimate goal, of course, is to ship products faster. We want to write software. We want to write quality software. We want to write secure software. And we want to do it at a faster pace so that from the time an idea becomes a user story to when that is released in production, delivering value to the business, we can shorten that amount of time and, and do so in a way that doesn't increase the stress of the team, but also doesn't decrease the quality or the security of the product. DevOps focuses on speeding that up because developers are thinking a little bit more about the operation side. Like, how do we actually run and deploy? And is my software something that I've written that can run in production? The, the whole, it works on my machine is not acceptable sentence in the DevOps world. And so I, as a developer, I'm thinking about what my code looks like in production and how do I also make it easy to understand what it's doing in production with better logging, better instrumentation and different things like that, because that's really going to help the ops team when this thing is running in production. The reason the ops team is starting to think more like developer is also how do I start to use principles such as infrastructure as code and configuration as code. In other words, code, what used to be the purview of the developer. Now, as an ops person, I'm writing code to help operate that application, to help build the infrastructure, to help configure it, to help run it. And so you have this of ideas of developers are thinking more operational operations is thinking more like a developer. And that really is what that core tenant of DevOps is. So why DevSecOps? Why are we adding Sec to the middle of it? Sec is security. It's because going back to that earlier idea that we're trying to make our products go out faster. What that also means is there's a little bit more risk, right? If I'm writing code that goes to production the same week, am I actually going through all the tests? Am I going through all the things that need to happen from creating secure software? And if you don't have that, if we don't take a DevSecOps philosophy, you're going to have some risk about whether that is true or not. One of the big tenets of DevOps is called shift left. And what that's trying to get at in the DevOps space is quality. We think about 
there's a, a graph that you've probably seen if you've done anything with DevOps, where the cost of a bug in the development environment is almost zero because the developer can fix it. In the QA environment, it's a little bit more because the QA team has to find it and then the developers have fixed it and it has to be retested. And then, of course, as you go through the later stages, that cost just increases. They can become radically higher in production, right? Because a bug in production could actually disrupt the business, could lose customer records. There's all sorts of things. That's the the quality perspective of shift left when it comes to DevOps. We have that same concern when we talk about DevSecOps, but from a security perspective, how do we shift security left as well? How do we start thinking about security and by extension privacy as well, all the way back to the user story? How are we writing that user story in a way that we're thinking about what is this function? How do we keep it secure? And, and what are the other implications? So that as the developers building it, they're building it securely. As the QA team is testing it, they're testing some of the aspects of the security. But even beyond that, we start to actually add new types of testing in as well, security specific testing that we'll talk about in a bit. But the idea that I'm now defining security as code is the, the phrase we like to use, meaning I'm actually writing scripts, I'm writing configuration, I'm writing other sorts of code artifacts that will help me enforce security as well. So security policies can actually be codified, written, and then automated and put into that. Again, we'll kind of dive into that later. But the point I want to make here is DevSecOps matters because we're getting security, a seat at the table during the development lifecycle. It is not the thing that we slap on the end that just says, oh, you didn't follow policies. No, this isn't going to production. That's the expensive point. It's also not there at all where the security risk goes into production and causes an exploit that causes harm to the business. That's the very expensive problem that we want to prevent. Instead, we want to bring security to the table, make it part of that software development lifecycle from the beginning, from the earliest stage, so that we are always thinking about security. Security is part of every step of that process. It would be me to also talk about my view on the modern CISO as well, because it's one thing to talk about DevSecOps and why it matters to the CISO. If my definition of CISO is different than yours, then this whole conversation might not make a lot of sense. And so thinking about who the CISO is, thinking about where they come from, a lot of CISOs will have a technical background. They will be infrastructure engineers, they'll be software developers that became architects that went through that. And so they will have a very strong focus on technology. They'll understand how do you write secure software? They understand how do you configure firewalls well? How do you do pen testing? How do you do all segmentation? All these technical concerns that are super important to security, a CISO with that technical background is going to be naturally inclined to think about that aspect, that perspective of security. And we're talking about cybersecurity. It is technical security. So if you don't have a technical background at some level, a CISO's job is very difficult because the attacks are technical, the risks are technical, the mitigations are technical in most cases. There's also the people side of the CISO that is super important coming to that shortly. So that's one background for CISOs. Another background that is not too uncommon is the compliance side. It's super normal for companies to find out about cybersecurity because they suddenly get a new regulatory or compliance requirement, especially if we roll back 15 or so years. Hey, if you're taking credit cards, your merchant bank just asks you to sign this PCI compliance statement. What's PCI compliance? Oh, look at this. I have to do these technical things. I have to have processes. I have to have training. I have to make sure my network is segmented. Again, that blend of people and that blend of technical. But the company is asking the questions now because they've been handed a form about PCI compliance. And so a lot of CISOs came up through that background of I'm helping companies who have new compliance requirements, either because they came from the industry or because the company has grown to the point where they actually have to follow them. Uh, great example, if you weren't public, but you are public. Or if you're a small company and then you all of a sudden get a public company as a customer, they're going to hand you a full stack of compliance things that you have to do that you didn't have to do before they were your customer. So all these sort of compliance routes, SOC 2, PCI, HIPAA, helped mold a lot of the CISOs that, that we know today because they came through that side of things as well. 
where I really think that this modern CISO shines and what this role has become is that of risk manager, cybersecurity risk in particular. Risk management is for those that aren't familiar with it, right? The language of what could happen, how likely is it going to happen, and how expensive is it going to be if it happened in a nutshell. And so if we're thinking about all of the things we talked about from a risk perspective, it really does give us a way to think about the cybersecurity risk in the same terms that the other business leaders care about. Your CFO doesn't care about firewalls, network segmentation, VPNs, zero trust. They care about cost. Is it going to cost more to fix this or more to not fix this? And so that risk management perspective lets the C so say, I need to mitigate this particular risk because I've calculated this risk at this dollar value using the formula we talked about earlier. And the cost to mitigate it is less than that. So it's a, it's a good investment. We're going to spend money to prevent future larger losses. Flip that around. Maybe there's a small risk and the cost to mitigate it is more than that. The CISO can now say, hey, C-suite, hey, board, we have identified a risk to our business. Here's what the likelihood that that risk occurring is. And here's what that would cost us if it happens. And I recommend to you that we accept that risk because the cost of mitigating it, the cost of putting products, processes, people in place to prevent that risk from happening are going to exceed the cost of that risk. And so I presented my case and I've shown you that I'm a good steward of company resources because I've recommended that we just accept the risk. And of course, the business could say, no, no, we don't have that risk appetite. Let's actually go ahead and spend the money and protect ourselves there too, even though we understand that it might be more than its risk. Some companies have less risk appetite, and so they will still go ahead and cover that. But it was the right conversation. The CISO had a business conversation. They didn't have a technical conversation. They didn't have a compliance conversation. They had a risk conversation. And so that is where I have defined the modern CISO. That's the baseline for the CISO. We talked about the baseline for DevOps, DevSecOps. All right, why should the CISO think about DevSecOps, right? If I'm a risk manager, if I'm thinking about the risk to the business, what is the risk to not having DevSecOps in particular? DevSecOps applies to businesses that are writing software internally. If you're a software company, you probably have a need for DevSecOps or something related to it. If you're a, an operational technology, a warehouse distribution logistics company, your first instinct might be, well, I don't need DevSecOps. That's probably not true for most larger companies. Almost every company, no matter their business, is writing software internally. And so DevSecOps is going to be something that's going to apply. What's the risk if I don't have DevSecOps in my business? I'm not a software company. Let's just look at some common, but also recent breaches that have a DevSecOps component. First off, Log4j. It's a library from a Java programming environment. Log4j was one of the most popular libraries. It really is in almost every Java product in the world. And then a few years ago, a severe vulnerability was found in a particular version of it. New versions, it was fixed, but that version had a severe vulnerability that was exploited in the wild. And so all of a sudden, every single computer on this planet had a level of exposure. And I say every single computer because even Windows computers have Java hiding on them somewhere. If your kids have Minecraft, it's written in Java. Log4j is on that computer. It might be the wrong version. So you might want to make sure they update their Minecraft. It's out there, it's widespread, and now it's vulnerable. The world knows it's vulnerable and it's everywhere. Stories were written by product owners. Developers implemented their software. They used that library. QA tested it. The security team reviewed what it, it got packaged and it got deployed into the world all through a software development lifecycle that at the time was believed secure, but come back around and say, oh, actually now we know there's a vulnerability. How do we fix that? That's a DevSecOps question. That's a DevSecOps concern. And so it really does matter. Solar Winds is, and again, for that breach, for those that I hope you're familiar with it, but if you aren't, Solar Winds runs server management software. Their software had a 
capability in it. Their software is deployed to all these different customers. Thousands and thousands of customers are running their software in a critical way to monitor and measure servers at a very low level access, kind of a root or admin level access to servers. So it's a great target for hackers. SolarWinds did get breached. And where did they get breached? Within their software development lifecycle, the bad actors were able to add exploit to the actual deployment package so that when customers updated to the the newest version, they were installing not only SolarWinds, but they're also installing exploitable, basically command and control software to their environments. Huge compromise, huge risk, and very much a DevSecOps because that was actually the target of that attack. It was how do we inject malicious code into the SDLC so that when you distribute your code to your customers, we're tagging along for the ride. Equifax is another great example. If you dig into the details of what happened to the actual technical side of the breach, it was a older version of a particular library that was exploitable, that hackers were able to work their way sideways. There are many, many different other technical controls that, that failed to amplify the magnitude of that breach, but one of them was absolutely a vulnerable version of a third-party software was in the environment and it was able to be exploited to move in laterally into the environment. So again, DevSecOps, because we've got a library and software that is vulnerable and how do we manage that? And finally, a more recent one, move it. That breach actually turns out was a classic SQL injection. I first learned about a SQL injection 24 years ago when I wrote my first one and somebody's like, that's dumb. Not to discredit the move it world has gotten a lot more complicated. One that I wrote was dumb. You can still do SQL injections inadvertently in your code. And, and that's not because you're dumb. It's because it's a complicated world and it's easy to miss certain things. But there's so many ways to protect it that it's also a question of where should that have been caught? It should not have been caught by the bad actors who then were able to use that SQL injection to take over the move it and steal the data that was traveling through it. Similar to SolarWinds, they attacked move it the product, but they attacked it in a way to where it was deployed on customers because customers are using it to transfer so many different files back and forth that all the data that's flowing through move it became the target, not the company that actually wrote move it or the move it software itself, but instead the data was transferring. Preventing and finding exploitable vulnerabilities in your software as you write it is a concern of DevSecOps. And so if you're a CISO and you're thinking about some of the top line breaches that everybody talks about, everybody still, you still fill out forms about Log4j, do you use it? Was move it in your environment? Yes, no. As a CISO, these breaches all do come back down to DevSecOps and, and what it can bring to it. We've been talking about the risks. We've been talking about some real world examples of where DevSecOps either failed because it wasn't fully implemented in a way that helped or a good DevSecOps practice could have helped. And to be fair, with all these breaches, even if these companies had the absolute best DevSecOps processes in place and are doing everything right, these still could have happened. The real world is always going to be harder and more complicated, especially when you're a company like SolarWinds, Equifax, Remove It. You've got nation state grade hackers attacking you. It's a different ballgame than most of us have to play in. Please keep that in mind that you can do everything right and still the bad thing can happen. DevSecOps is basically helping us think about libraries like Log4j, like the one that was in the Equifax system. Those libraries do have vulnerabilities. There's no question about whether they do. If you have software that's deployed in your environment, you're using software libraries, third-party, open source, whatever they are, they do have vulnerabilities. Now, many of them are known, and there's huge databases like Sneak and others that you can look in and say, oh, look, I'm running a vulnerable version of that library. And there's a patch. I can go get the latest update, and that particular vulnerability is gone. And of course, I'm running new version of software, so it has new, yet discovered vulnerabilities. It's just always going to happen. But zero days are the other part of that. I'm running software today. That software is considered secure. There's no known vulnerabilities. Tomorrow, 
a vulnerability is discovered. I'm now running production software that has a vulnerability. There is no patch because the presence of that vulnerability was literally discovered tomorrow. Now, what do I do? Now, how do I think about that software? You're going to have to have a strategy around handling zero days, but DevSecOps is going to help you understand that you even have this problem to begin with. And then finally, secure cutting practices, DevSecOps coming all the way back to you know, DevOps, what it is, is people, it's process, it's tools. There are tools, there are products that help you with identifying software libraries and help you mitigate zero days. There are processes that can help your developers think through security better. And then the people themselves, there's training, OWASP training and things like that. Secure coding practices are absolutely part of what a DevSecOps practice is going to bring to your team. And so having said that, understanding the risk, understanding how that risk can affect the business, DevSecOps to the rescue. Again, as a CISO at a company that writes software, that CISO is not in charge of writing the software. They're not in charge of the developers. They're not in charge of the product management, the product owners. They are a parallel track to that environment. They can inspect, they can advise, hopefully they can override and help be influential in the risk acceptance process, but they're not in charge of the actual software development. So as a CISO, you have to think about how do I influence, how do I encourage DevSecOps in my organization? How do I build that in? And we'll talk about that. But first, what are some of the ways that I'm going to recommend or think about or research how DevSecOps actually can come in and help? First off, there are tons of products that have vulnerability databases, and you should absolutely pick one of them, the one that makes the most sense from you to your company from a cost perspective and overlap with this type of software you write. But those vulnerability databases become part of your CI/CD process. As you write code, as you commit it to the repo, these products are looking at that code and saying, hey, did you know you've got for J the vulnerable version in your source code? Did you know you have this library, that library? And most of those libraries are actually researchable as well. So if you happen to have a particular CVE that was announced, like, look at this one, you can go look that up in their database and can even look at your software manually. Please don't do it manually. You have too many libraries in your software for that to be effective. But again, the product you can subscribe to the product, they'll scan your code, they'll give you that report, which directly leads to something that government software is starting to require. And it's the idea of a software bill of materials. Look it up where that specifically came from, but both CISA and NIST are recommending that software have a software bill of materials or an SBOM, as I like to pronounce it. And what that is, is just like it sounds from a bill of materials from a physical product, like what's inside this box, what's inside the product, all the way down to the chips. Same question for software. What's inside my software? What libraries, what components, where are they sourced? How are they tracked? How are they managed? All those sort of questions matter when you're developing secure software, especially when you delay for the government. If there's a an amazing library that is the best one you've ever seen, but it happens to be written by a Chinese company, the U.S. government's going to want to know that. Whether or not you can use it, not what I'm answering today. You at least need to know that is in your software, and that way you can determine, make that determination if you can use it. If you don't even know it's in there, you're not even asking the right question. And so the software bill of materials is that extension of that vulnerability database, because now I know what's in my database. Think back to the zero day. If a, new, a particular library that you're using, maybe it's a component in React, we discover vulnerability tomorrow, the news comes out, maybe your particular vulnerability that database hasn't quite caught up. That's okay. Go check out your software bill of materials and see, oh yeah, this library is in my product. I got to drag out my zero day playbook and start figuring out what to do. Or, okay, I'm not actually using that version of that library. We're clear. We can dust our hands and look for the next problem. That software bill of materials becomes a critical part of that. And what's cool too, is there's a lot of companies starting to focus on that and build software that manages your SP 
um, specifically around where did it come from? What version is it? And then they will actually cryptographically sign the particular versions that you're using so that your software that's deployed in production knows what version it's got. If a developer inadvertently upgrades or downgrades that library, it will actually fail to build as opposed to leak out into your production environment. And so some really cool concepts coming out on that SBOM side of things as well. And that really does lead to that third bullet there, supply chain control. Your SBOM gives you the first step in controlling your supply chain. SolarWinds was considered a supply chain attack because the software that was injected into their build process that, that ended up being deployed was the, air quotes, supply chain that went into that software in your environment. The supply chain control has become a hot topic as well. Going back to where does it come from? Who wrote it? How frequently is it updated? How do you know if there's vulnerabilities? If there's vulnerabilities, how quickly are they going to be fixed? All those things become far more important in today's world supply chains. And so that is something that this category can really help with. That's on one side of the DevSecOps world. The other side is the actual practices that make DevSecOps what they are with the idea of operations starts to write code, security teams when to start to write code, developers writing code, because we end up with this concept of security as code. Talked about it earlier, but the idea there is I can define my security policies in a code format that can then be executed as part of my CICD to check for common problems. Obviously, and we'll talk about SAS and DAS here in a second, because that's one of the reasons they exist. I can basically write code that says, look for this type of injection, or I can have certain code quality standards, or I can have other aspects of my software development lifecycle codified and tested automatically. DevSecOps is successful when you automate processes um, and security as code is part of that SAST and DAST, static application security testing, dynamic application security testing. SAST or static is actually looking at the source code, looking for things like SQL injections, looking for mishandled variables, null reference problems, looking inside your code at errors that could create security breaches, but it doesn't run your code. It just says structurally, this is to be subject to SQL injection. It doesn't know if it is or isn't, it just knows that it could be. DAS, on the other hand, the dynamic security testing actually runs your code and basically runs scripts just very similar to QA automation scripts. It, it pokes, it prods, it you know, swaps session variables, swaps different types of variables, manipulates user requests and all the different ways that can create vulnerabilities. And then looks at the results and says, hey, by the way, I changed this particular variable when I submitted to your website and your website returned to 500. It crashed. That's probably not what you intended. Now we know we got to do some better error handling. We got to do something there that's similar to the SQL injection. It'll throw SQL queries. And if it gets back a SQL error, it's like, I think I found a SQL injection flaw. And so DAST runs the software, SAS looks at the code. Both of them are controlled and configured with code themselves. And so they do play into that security as code perspective. And then observability, I think is something that maybe gets lost when people talk about DevOps becoming DevSecOps. I mentioned earlier as a developer, thinking about how your code is running production, how would you troubleshoot it? How would you diagnose it? You're going to add more logging, hopefully with a modern version of Log4j. You're going to add more instrumentation. You're going to have things that a operations person can snapshot and hand to you and say, we're having weird behavior in production. Can you take a look at this and figure out what's wrong? Because you almost certainly can't reproduce production bugs in your local environment unless they're really egregious bugs. So that observability is super important for DevOps because it helps the ops and dev team work together in that live production environment. But it is even more important in DevSecOps because now I have a stream of data through that instrumentation, through that logging that I can look at from a security perspective. I'm not just looking at it, oh, there's a bug, I need to fix the bug. I'm looking at what does normal behavior of my application look like? Flip that around. Can I now detect abnormal behavior? Can I use my SIEM seam 
product monitor the internal workings of my application. I'm following DevSecOps principles. I can because there's naturally more observability baked into my application than before. And so that really kind of unlocks a new level that not only am I paying attention to traffic and CPU and other things that may get go sideways if people are abusing the system, but the inner workings of the application, the, wait a minute, why is the application all of a sudden requesting this type of data when it never had before? Maybe it's a vulnerability, maybe it's an exploit, maybe it's something that from a security perspective we need to dive into. And so DevSecOps really does bring good practices that help the DevSecOps world over to the security team in a way that I think is probably underutilized by a lot of organizations. But how do we make all this real? How do we take a CISO's viewpoint, which probably is at the 30,000 foot view and translate that into a way that my product team, my development team can actually start to do the things I need them to do. And so that really is through these layers, these organizational layers of think about the policy. What are the words on paper that say we need to do the right thing? What is the right thing? What are the principles and the, the core concepts? What are my regulations? What are my compliance standards that I have to follow? Define that at the policy level. Define the idea that I need to have certain controls in place because of this reason for the business, because they have these different things that are happening. Given my policies, now we can start to define the procedures. Now we can start to talk about the how. How do we actually operationalize a policy? What is the gated commits, the gated deployments? Who can sign off on a production release? All those sort of procedural things that happen in the DevSecOps world are defined at a procedure level in support of a policy. The policy gave us the broad terms, outlines, the reasons, the rationale, the procedure says how start writing those procedures in a way that the CISO may stop at the policy level is where they mentally focus, team up with that development team, with that ops team, start to help them define the procedures, help them collaboratively understand what the policies are and how their procedures can adapt to that. Out of the procedures, then focus on the actual controls. I just mentioned gated production deployments, right? That's a control. Procedure says the product owner has to click the yes that we can do it. The actual technical implementation of a yes to click is your control. And so help translate policy procedure into the technical controls, help the people, the DevOps team that's actually building the deployment pipelines, help them understand what actually needs to happen so that the people can follow the procedure. A procedure can be like a checklist that I just pull up and I'm like, yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. Even better if it's implemented at the control level where in order for something to happen, I actually have to do something, not I can just check off on my checklist that I did it. And if it's not Obvious by now, controls lead to the actual code. The actual security is code. The actual CICD pipeline is code. All the things that actually have been implemented to have those controls be effective is done at the code level. And of course, the developers themselves are going to then write code that flows through the system. And so that is, I think, where the CISO really does get to influence this. That 30,000 foot view, that policy view is going to define and flow through all the different layers so that as a developer, what I do follows the requirements compliance from a security, from a best practice standpoint, as a QA tester, as a product owner, as a business analyst, I'm doing things that meet the policy and therefore make us more secure. And so the theme that I hope I've conveyed is that DevSecOps really is part of a whole solution. The whole idea of DevOps was to bring together Dev and the Ops. So DevSecOps gives security a seat at the table. And so the idea is we are coming together, not as siloed teams, but as one team, one team whose mission is to deliver secure software, quality software quickly. And there's so many other, there's data ops, there's so many other combinations of these words because it's really the same thing. It is all a piece of a whole mission of delivering software securely, delivering software quickly, delivering software with quality. And so that idea should pervade and should always be present in the, the CISO's mind that yes, the CISO is a hopefully an independent branch of the company from others, 
but it is still part of a whole, it is still part of a team that has to work together, has to be collaborative, has to communicate in a way that each of the concerns are met. And so another principle of DevSecOps is that communication, is that how do I think like a developer? How do I think like an ops person? How do I think like a security person? How do we share and create a common language, a common vocabulary across these different teams so that we can communicate, so that the developer doesn't have to say, hey, security, can I do this or not? They are already embodying and embedding secure thinking in their actual development effort. They're actually saying, hey, I took some OWASP training and said, don't do this. So I'm not going to. Architects are thinking about the software from the same way. And then when the develop, when the security person does get pulled in, what they're looking at is kind of just that double check of, yep, we did follow the process. We did follow the procedures. We are writing code that meets the standards that we have to meet. I'm not here to explain. I'm not here to say no. I'm just here to support and make sure that we don't miss things. And like I said earlier, DevSecOps makes security part of every stage. The, the BAs, as they write user stories, are writing security in mind. The developers, the architects, QA tests are all thinking about security. The operations team effectively is dealing with security anyway, but now they think about it in a way that is more focused on security. And, and so security does become part of every stage. It's on the mind of everybody sitting at that table and, and it becomes a part of that product. The way people think about the product, the way people think about writing software does just become more focused on security. And and I think I want to just kind of close that vein of thought, and it's actually this topic today as well. If you're thinking as a CISO and you're thinking about DevSecOps, people process products, how do you know how much to do? Like how many SAS and DAS tools do I need to have? How many policies, procedures, controls do I need to write and create? Should I do more or should I do the reasonable amount? Because what am I going to be judged on when the bad thing happens? You have to do the reasonable amount. This is my opinion. Doing less than reasonable is probably going to get you in trouble really fast. Doing more than reasonable is going to be an uphill battle for a company that maybe hasn't gotten bit yet. They, they haven't had the bad thing happen yet. All they see is I want to add cost without a clear benefit because they may be more risk tolerant. And so going back to that risk manager, that risk appetite of the organization, do you do more? Will your business allow you to? Do you do less and disclose it and the business accepts the risk? Maybe. Um, do you do the reasonable? Well, I think so. Keep in mind, though, the bad thing's still going to happen. It's not an if, it's a when. And when that bad thing does happen, you then are judged on what you've done. If you did more than was necessary, it's going to be hard to say, well, had we done this one more thing, we would have been safer because hopefully you were doing that. If you were doing less and then the bad thing happens, it's really easy to point that finger and blame like, hey, didn't you say we were supposed to do that thing? And then you said we didn't have to because it, we could accept that risk. Okay, sorry. Yes, no, uh, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said we should spend that money. And even the reasonable amount is the right answer. But was it reasonable? Is going to become the question when that bad thing happens. Like, I guess it wasn't the reasonable amount because the bad thing happened. It's a tough world as we didn't talk about this. We've talked about it elsewhere, seen plenty of articles. In today's world, the CISO's job is not a particularly fun one because of everything we just talked about, because of the regulations, because of the personal liability that's coming in. And so it's a hard place to be. And you always have that counter pressure of, I do want to do more, but the business says, no, I do need to do the reasonable amount. So let me figure out what that is in a way that protects the business, protects myself, and keeps everybody at the correct level of an unhappy. And so with that, that's my perspective from a CISO, from a DevSecOps. I hope this was informative. Thank you for anyone who is still here. So with that, I'm going to close out and hope everybody has a, the day that you want it to be. Thanks all.